Good morning. Uh, if you would uh, turn in your Bibles to 2 Corinthians as we continue our uh, study in, of this book. If you want to use the uh, Bible that's in the pew or chair, it's on page 968. Now, what I've handed out is the latter part of the chapter, and we just didn't, we don't have time to cover the whole chapter, but I didn't want to leave it un spoken for, so to speak. And as I've read through it several times, it was, it's hard to kind of follow what Paul's saying. Uh, it's about his relationship to the Corinthians and uh, his relationship or lack thereof with the opponents that are at uh, Corinth. And so I, I decided to do this paraphrase, but it's more than a paraphrase. It kind of expands his thought in various places as a way to explain what's happening in these last uh, verses, 7 through 18. But we are going to look at verses 1 through 6. And I've retitled this simply uh, to be uh, the war, okay? The war. I, Paul, myself, entreat you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ, I who am humble when face to face with you, but bold towards you when I am away. He's basically quoting his opponents there. Yeah, yeah, he's bold away, but he's not when he's here. Uh, He says, I beg of you that when I'm present, I may not have to show boldness with such confidence as I count on showing against some who suspect us of walking according to the flesh. For though we walk in the flesh, we're not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ, being ready to punish every disobedience when your obedience is complete. That's the reading of God's word. Let us pray. Lord, we pray that you would open up our hearts to understand your word. We pray that you would give us hearts for your word, Lord. Not only this morning, but day in and day out. Give us hearts that hunger and thirst for righteousness, as Jesus put it. Hunger and thirst to know God, to know your salvation, to know what you have promised us what you uh, command us to do so that we may love one another uh, better and better, care more for people, and do more uh, good in this world. Oh, Lord, we pray that you will make us all, men and women and boys and girls, of the Word of God, and not just to know it intellectually, but, Lord, to love it from our heart and especially to love Jesus Christ, who is its thing. Oh, Lord, give us this grace to have a passion for you and to show it in our passion uh, for your word, uh, to entrust ourselves to it. And we ask this for Jesus' sake. Amen. Now, some of our kids would recognize these titles. uh, Call of Duty, uh, Metal Gear. Some of the men, too, are shaking their heads. But um, uh, Medal of Honor, Assassin's Creed. Wolfenstein. I won't tell you what that's an interesting one, but um, 
Battlefield, Homefront, Halo. These are all video games about war. And I've not played many myself, but I have watched my son some years ago play a good bit. And the graphics really are amazing in these games. The first time I saw one of them in their advanced form, I could hardly believe how real it was. But for me personally, that was nothing like the reality that was brought to bear in my mind, in my thinking, in seeing Saving Private Ryan. Uh, that first scene, in fact, the most gripping part that I cannot get out of my head in many parts of that movie is the assault craft and the picture at the beginning where the camera is situated, you know, five or six men deep. And when the front of that craft opens, the machine gun that just begins mowing down the guys in front. And I could almost feel the thud of the bullets as they hit their chest and they fell. It just, you know, it it took me as close as I could to that moment. But that's not real. That was just a movie, right? I'll tell you, it was real for my wife Kay's Uncle Jim. Uh, Uncle Jim fought in the European theater, and he landed with the Allied forces in Italy. And as you may know, they took Italy hill by hill, town by village by hill, I mean, piece at a time. It's regarded as some of the most terrible fighting in World War II. Jim came back, and he was never the same, never the same. Uh, post-traumatic stress syndrome was not a diagnosis at the time. They didn't hit the books until 1980. He didn't have therapy, but he, he took his own therapy, alcohol, till his dying day. And I remember sitting with Jim, and he was weeping 30 years after the war, almost 30 years. And he was weeping, saying... I didn't want to kill those young men. I didn't want to kill those young men. Haunted to that day with what he had to do and who he saw die around him and how close he came to dying again and again. It's real. It's real. Not a game. It's not a movie. War is horrific. And we are in a real war. It's not a game. It's not a movie. It's war. And Paul uses war terms on purpose in this passage to grip us with the reality, with the gravity of what we are facing, what he is involved in as an apostle. And this is first and foremost about his own warfare in proclaiming the gospel. But it becomes that of the whole church down through the ages. And it embraces us as well. We all are in this war. That's the first point I want to make. We all are in this war. If you belong to Christ, you are in this war. Now, if you find out that a war is going on, you have to decide what you're going to do about it. If it involves you, if it involves your people, if it involves your area, your territory, are you going to fight in it? Or perhaps you have to just run from it. How do you get out of the way of it? 
Like now there are 9 million people in Syria since March 2011, uh, the civil war when it began. 9 million people who have fled their homes. 3 million are in Iraq and Turkey, Jordan, Lebanon, surrounding countries. 6 million are still in Syria, but they're not in their homes anymore. And under 150,000 are seeking asylum in Europe. But that's, that's the reality of war. What are we going to do? Can we run from this war if we're in this war? Well, you might run if you're, you were a civilian, but you're not. You're not a civilian in this war. And you can't escape this war. You're in it. If you belong to Jesus, you are in the war. And you are called to fight in this war. You're called to defend in this world. You're called to assault strongholds in this war. And it would be an advance for all of us, myself included, if every day you wake up and you realize, among many other things that you have to realize, all right? But let's just put this other one in there as well. I'm at war. I'm at war. That's the reality. Secondly, though, who are you fighting? What are you fighting? We're all called to be soldiers. We're all in this fighting in different ways, in different uh, areas. But what are we fighting? He says it here, doesn't he? He says, we, uh, the, the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. He calls them strongholds, like a castle, like a fortress, fortified city. And then he defines those. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised up against the knowledge of God. And when he speaks of thought in verse 5... This is following the other. So it, thought is understood as part of the arguments and every lofty opinion raised up against God. So these are prideful, op, this is prideful opposition to the knowledge of God. Pretensions against God. These are the strongholds by which we, when we're unbelievers by nature... Uh, we seek to fortify ourselves against God's truth. To fortify ourselves against God himself. Because we don't want him. We don't want him to encroach upon our private world. We don't want him to have a say-so in our own lives. We don't want him to displace the fact that I'm the center of my life. I'm the uh, most important being in my life. I want to do my will. And I don't trust what he would do to me. You think of Romans uh, chapter 1, where this is spoken of by Paul, of how mankind in its unrighteousness suppresses the truth of God that it sees so clearly in creation. Suppresses, holds down, denies it, ignores it, 
fights against it, displaces it, tries to give alternative views of this world that do not embrace this God. Specifically, Paul says there, they didn't honor him. They didn't thank him. And instead, they worship the creature rather than creator. That's our fundamental approach. And we just sung about it. The way that we give up our idols is to have them displaced by the magnificent beauty of Christ, which invades our heart. That's the only thing that will cause us to abandon this pretension against God, this, the battlements that we have built up against him. But this is what we fight against. We fight against the strongholds of people's opposition to God. Paul talks this way in Ephesians 4 that unbelievers are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God. They They have ignorance and hard hearts against that God. Philip Hughes says, the defiant and mutinous nature of sin, you know, commit mutiny, see, The defiant and mutinous nature of sin. Sinful man does not wish to know God. He wishes himself to be the self-sufficient center of his universe. And unless it is cast down by the gospel of God's grace in Christ Jesus, his tower becomes his tomb. You see, and that's why we have to fight against these fortifications. Because... As people have built themselves up against God, they're constructing, in a sense, their own coffin to be apart from God forever. We have, all of us have a part in the wonderful privilege of assailing those fortresses with the gospel of Jesus Christ. So that people will will be one for him. We are seeking to protect ourselves at all costs from this God. And I think of uh, that cry uh, at, at the end of the movie when he's being, uh, he's being tortured. And he cries out freedom at the end of the movie. Braveheart, which I just lost it, you know. Uh, That's one of those places where that that title of that movie goes somewhere in my brain. One of these days when I talk to God, I'm going to say, where did it go when I can't find it? And then where does it come forward when you think of it? I don't know, but anyway. But at the end of Braveheart, you think of this cry like, "You, you can do anything to me. You can torture me. You can rack my body with pain. I'm living for freedom. And that is you and me. Declaring that we want to be free from God. And the irony of it is that's our enslavement. We are enslaved so long as we don't belong to God. So long as he is not the center of our universe. He is our freedom. He is our nourishment. He is our life. It's he's whom we were made for. And we're made to enjoy every part of our lives. Every aspect of our lives. In fellowship with him. In union with him. And when that doesn't happen, the, the Bible has one word for it. Death. 
You're dead in your trespasses and sins. And Jesus describes it this way in John 17. This is eternal life to know you and the one whom you sent. You see, you go from death to life by what? Eternal life is not the extent of the life. Eternal life is who you know, who you're in union with. And so here we are protecting ourselves against this God Building up every argument, everything we can, every reason not to trust in him, not to believe this gospel, this coming near of God in the person of Christ. And we are, think we're looking down, guarding ourselves in freedom, and we're constructing our own death. We're consigning ourselves to judgment forever. This is interesting that Charles Hodge, way back in 1859, which if you know is the year before Charles Darwin wrote uh, his book, Origin of Species. But Hodge writes this, Men of science and philosophers are as confident in their conclusions and as much disposed to exalt themselves or their opinions against the knowledge of God as ever. 1859. This is not new. Paul talked about it. 2,000 years ago, every generation, thought is raised up against the knowledge of God. And I'll say this, it's raised up most against the specific knowledge of God found in Jesus Christ. That's where you can find the first compromise in churches, so-called Christian. The compromise of the gospel of Christ. The compromise that he really didn't substitute in our place and die bearing the judgment of God in our place. That'll be the first to go. He didn't really save us from God's wrath. He was just a good man. He was just a good teacher. Even other religions will come along and tell you he was a good man. He was a good teacher. You see, the edges are broken off at that point. The heart of it begins to be robbed because everything is raised up against the specific knowledge of God in Jesus Christ. That's where Satan will focus all of his war. Because if you can fight that, then you can have a thousand different ideas of God. Just don't give me this one. Of God coming in the flesh and revealing the one true God in Jesus Christ. That we will not have. And there's no telling where this may lead in our own society. So we're all in the war. We're fighting against these strongholds. Not in a way to hurt people, obviously. Not in a a way to do harm to people, but to do good to people, which brings us to the third point. What are we fighting with or what we're fighting against? What are we fighting with? And Paul's very clear, isn't he? We're walking in the flesh. He said, we don't walk according to the flesh. We'll get to that in a second, but we are walking in the flesh. We are human beings living in this world. Okay. But our weapons are not of the flesh. Our weapons are not human weapons. We have divine weapons. That's what we carry. The arrows we have, (laughs) we pull out. These are divine arrows. Not human. He, He 
must be talking about in the first place the gospel itself because of how many times Paul refers to the gospel as being the power of God as he does in Romans chapter 1. 1 Corinthians 1, he says the word of, of the cross is folly. It's foolishness to those who are perishing, but to those who are believing, it's the power of God. For those who are being saved, it's the very power of God. And later he says, speaks of Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. You see, the gospel is the power of God because the gospel is the message about Jesus Christ, the one who saves us, the one who acted on our behalf on the cross and was raised for us and rules the world for the sake of his people, bringing it to uh, the conclusion he chooses. So it is this message about Christ, the one who powerfully rescues us. And therefore, this is the power of God. And later he talks about it not being about worldly wisdom, Paul says, when I preach. It's about the spirit and it's about power. So taking these things together, it's the gospel applied by the spirit that is God's power. Spirit applied gospel alone will tear down these strongholds. And it's beautiful, as Jacob tends to do again and again, that we sang about this in on page four. Um, Is not thine a captured heart? Chief among 10,000 own him. You see, uh, that and singing about how The only sight, the only thing that will free me is the sight of peerless worth. That's the wielding of divine power. And if you'll back up just a few pages, let's review Paul's description of this in 2 Corinthians 4, verse 6. Here, Paul's already said this, so he doesn't have to say it again, but this is his description of that power uh, In operation for God who said, let light shine out of darkness has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And this is the gospel because up above he talks about the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. You see, the gospel has this light in it, this glorious light. This light is the magnificent of magnificence of Jesus, who is the perfect reflection of God. That's the knowledge of God come closest to us in the person of Christ. And yet this glory, he says earlier there in chapter 4... We are blinded against it. We've been blinded by the enemy. Here's another description of the fortress that we have raised up against him. We don't want him. We don't want him ruling us because we're blind to his beauty and glory. We refuse his beauty and glory. And we built up everything against him so that we will not give ourselves up to him. And yet, here comes the gospel and here comes the spirit to pierce our hearts. And shine the beauty of Christ. (laughs) And it undoes us. And as uh, we sang about, we begin to see the ugliness of our idols and what we're giving our lives for. Finally, because we see the peerless beauty of Christ. And we give ourselves up to him. 
So we're fighting with those weapons. We're not uh, philosophers, although we have a philosophy. We're not philosophers in the sense of the way we argue with someone, seeking to win an argument so that the turn of the argument wins them over. We're primarily bearing witness of Christ. We're setting forth who he is, whom he's revealed himself to be. And we're letting that knowledge out. We're explaining it maybe in piecemeal over a period of time with a friend where we have multiple conversations with that person. And for sure, we may have to learn it better and better and we answer questions better and better, all of this. But the weapons that we use are very simple, but they're extremely powerful. It's the the good news of Jesus. I remember reading of one fella uh, who was ministering among communists years ago. And he was talking to this one atheist, communist atheist. And he didn't engage him in all these arguments of why communism is wrong and why Christianity is right. He said, would you do something with me? Would you study the book of John with me? And the man agreed. He did. And six chapters in... He was a believer in Jesus Christ. Now, that may not be every story, of course. But that's an example, you see, of the divine weapons of the word of God, the message of who Jesus is being applied by the spirit. Those are our weapons. And they accused Paul, uh, as he says in this passage, of not walking uh, by the Spirit. That's what's meant when he says we are not, uh, they accuse us or suspect us of walking according to the flesh. In, in their minds, Paul didn't have enough pizzazz. He didn't have enough flash, you know. He, he didn't have enough outward strength and coolness uh, to, to be, give evidence that he was walking in the Spirit. And Paul is saying, yeah, but, you know, we're not waging war according to how cool or strong or financially successful or, you know, charismatic in this way or another, that, that, that doesn't win the battle. You know, got the latest hairdo, you know, we're, we're putting lights in the right place, you know, <laughs> in here. We've got the music just right so that it melts your heart so you come down front, you know, all those things. I, I told you one time this terrible thing that was said to me by one of Kay's former pastors he, was, he pulled me aside. I've told some of you this story. He pulled me aside. I was in seminary, he, and we were in Kay's living room. Now, he was not her pastor at the time, but he had been her pastor for 20 years. And he called me in the living room. He says, I'm going to tell you the most important thing I could tell any young pastor. And I, I knew we had some differences theologically, but I was all ears. I thought, this has to be good. I was looking for character, prayer, you know, all the... He said, when you get a church, you make sure that the steps are not in the back, but they're beside the pulpit. Because if you don't, between your sermon and the, uh, the invitation, if you lose eye contact, you'll lose them every time. I didn't know what... I, I, did, I couldn't say anything. You know, I just... 
It, I, and I found out from Kay that he had had this, in his mind, barren ministry because for 20 years, hardly ever, anybody ever came down front. That was his rationalization. If he'd only had the steps in the right place. Now, that's an obvious one, right? But we do it in a hundred different ways. Not depending on divine, powerful weapons. Not just trusting to say, I don't have to do anything but set forth the truth of Christ. And the Spirit will take these. And it doesn't matter what kind of fortress is there. He'll tear it to pieces. He'll shine through the darkness. He'll invade this heart and reveal to them the peerless Christ so that they will abandon their idols. So we fight this war. We fight against strongholds. We fight with spiritual divine weapons. And we fight, finally, what do we fight for? Okay. What we fight against, what we fight with, what do we fight for? And just mention this because of time, but he says we are seeking to win every thought and take it captive to obey Christ. Now, the context demands that what he's saying is we're... We're taking people captive to the obedience of Christ because he mentions in the next phrase, ready to punish every disobedience when your obedience is complete. So the context is that a person, well, this is how uh, one commentator put it. After the walls of the city have been breached and its defenses have been overcome, then the defenders themselves are taken captive. So it's this wonderful picture of taking people captive for Christ. Gospel conquering unbelief. And we'll sing about this in crowning uh, him with many crowns. It's, it's the taking of him as our Lord. The embracing of him as our king. Uh, we, uh, Kim sang about this. No more, my God, I boast, boast no more of all the duties I've done. It is you. I lose everything for you. You will be Lord and King from now on. And isn't it interesting that thought is brought into obedience? So the alternative of raising up fortifications and arguments against it is finally to submit and put myself in the hands of this gracious God. To submit myself. It's not in the end an intellectual, smart against smarts, better argumentation, more logical thinking, and then the adoption of a different religious idea, like adopting a different analysis of the Kennedy uh, assassination or a different view of the navigation system of the Golden Wing Warbler in its trip from Pennsylvania and Costa Rica. It's not just information. This is a new allegiance, right? A new allegiance of entrusting myself to this God so that my understanding is submissive, bound. The idea is being bound into obedience, like my new territory. I'm being brought into a new city in which I will live, and it's called obedience to Christ. Honor and love and devotion and trust to this Lord Jesus Christ, the one whom I had opposed And built myself against. I love this phrase. This passage in Proverbs. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. And do not lean on your own understanding. 
In all your ways acknowledge him and he will make straight your paths. Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. It will be healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. So we lay ourselves down to God. We entrust all of our ways to him, all of our thinking to him, all of our views of life, what makes a person happy, what this world is all about, where this world is heading, who I am, who God is. We give it all up to him into this new territory of the obedience of Christ. And this obedience, this capture is our liberation. This being captured is, as we put it in the song we sang, it's being captivated, right? That's our capture. Being captured by our captivation, our astonishment at Jesus Christ. That's our liberty. That he becomes the center of our lives. Well, you are, by God's grace, armed with divine weapons to win people to Christ. They've raised up their defenses, but have compassion on them. Have compassion on them. For these are their death traps. And you alone have been given the weapons that can pierce them with the beautiful, beautiful light of Jesus Christ. And I would ask this question, where are you yourself? Does this describe you? You've got your fortifications up against God. You've got all these reasons why you're not going to believe in him. All these arguments against God, against Christ, against putting yourself in his hands. I pray that you will see the true beauty of life, which is God himself offered in the person of Christ, a God who sacrifices himself for others. To belong to this God is your joy and freedom and your true humanity. Let us pray. Oh Lord, we thank you that you have died, Lord Jesus, even for our idolatry. You've died in the place of our rejection of you. You take away even that sin, Lord. Our fixed hatred that we had against you our despising of God, our disdain, our pride. Lord, the disgust we had, the natural disgust we have at the thought of giving ourselves into the hand of God. We thank you that Jesus washes us clean, that though our sins are scarlet, as God says, they will be as white as snow. Lord, thank you that you died in our place, that we can start completely afresh in you, having all of our sins cleansed by you. And Lord, for the beginning of the outbreak of your beauty into our lives to take place and then to grow, <clears throat> that more and more we would be devoted to that beauty and be astonished at that beauty and be changed by that beauty. Oh, Lord, we pray, set us free. Set us free by your grace. Amen.